batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Ready to move off. Always thought I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 70s and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! And now your hosts, Jeremy and Jeff. One half teaspoon for fast, effective relief. It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy, and guys, I'm I'm by myself again today. Jeff is in beautiful South America, and uh, thought we'd be able to hook up and do an episode while we were there. It just did not did not work out that way. We still owe you a discussion and review of the Blackberry Smoke album, like an arrow. And we'll still do that. But in the meantime, I wanted to check in with you guys and, and do a little update. And then I do want to talk about one of my new favorite bands and they're not a new band. And I've been aware of them, but just over the last gosh year or two, I've really kind of been getting into their music and, and gaining a, a, a new appreciation for these guys talking about wishbone ash. So we're going to talk about Wishbone Ash here coming up, but I do have just a few little items uh, that I wanted to talk about. Vince Neal is in the news and not in a good way. So two years ago, there was a big announcement of a big concert and, and I might have some of these acts wrong, but it was going to be like a big 80s fest. It was going to be Def Leppard. It was going to be Motley Crue. I think Poison might have been there at some point. Maybe Cheap Trick, maybe Joan Jett. I don't know. These kind of roll together. But I know for a fact there was supposed to be a big tour with uh, Def Leppard and Motley Crue on the bill. And I th- I think at one time it was going to be a co-headlining. So they'd kind of swap back and forth headlining. Well, then COVID happened. All of that kind of hit the skids and, and that didn't happen. And then they announced... Uh, they were going to try and do it again this year, but now it looks like it's being pushed out another year. So it'll be 2022 until this, uh, Def Leppard Motley Crue tour happens. Well, recently, and when I say recently, I mean in the last like two weeks or so, Vince Neil, this is a solo gig and this is his first, uh, post COVID performance. He's playing at the Boone River Valley Festival in Iowa. And I feel bad for the guy. I mean, you've maybe seen the footage from the Rock in Rio from like 2019 where, where it is literally hard to listen to. I mean, it, it would be funny, except, you know, people paid good money to see this. Uh, and it's just embarrassing. And Vince probably not quite as bad as he sounded there but it's it's pretty painful to watch and to hear and of course now there's concerns is he going to be ready for this big tour it's going to hit a lot of major arenas 
next year with Def Leppard. And guys, Def Leppard still puts on a really good show. And you've seen the pictures of shirtless Phil Collin, right? These guys, these guys are still in pretty good shape and still doing a pretty good job compared to Motley Crue. And guys, I don't mean any disrespect, but Vince looks terrible, not healthy, sounds terrible. Mick Mars, I mean, they literally have to like prop him up with the board. I mean, he is in bad shape and, and I'm not making fun of that. I'm just, I am concerned what's going to happen when this tour happens, if it happens. And there was also a recent uh, podcast where Phil called, you know, Phil's a nice guy. He's, he's, he, he's not going to bad mouth anyone, but he's, his response when asked about, Hey, you know, Vince is not looking good not sounding good. What do you think? And Phil's response was, look, he's got a year to get ready. You know, he's got a year to get ready. He can do it. He can do it. We'll see. We'll see. Now, another thing I wanted to bring up, we touched on KK's priest. KK Downing, as you all know, left Judas Priest. Since then, he's kind of said he he feels like he was kind of pushed, whatever. He talks about it in his book, Heavy Duty. He's got together this new band with a stupid name. KK's priest. I'm look, I'm a KK Downing fan. I really like KK. I always have. I I love classic priest, but this is just a stupid name for a band. But anyways, they released their single. The new album's about to drop. The reception so far from the, the new single has been very positive and people are excited about this. And on metal voice here last week, KK was asked, Hey, you know, would you entertain thoughts of ever, you know, going back to priest? And at this point, he's like, no, no way. He he basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, wild horses couldn't pull me back. He says, no. He said, I was a little nervous about going out on my own, but he's got confidence now and he's already working on material for the next album. I do hope they come up with a better name. Just let me just toss that out there. Okay. But there, this idea, everyone holding out hope that there might be some kind of reunion that KK could get back. Well, that ship has already sailed. And, you know, Glenn Tipton, for all intents and purposes, I mean, he might be able to go out and play a song or two, but I think he's pretty much done. So we've basically got a Judas Priest with Rob and Ian and Scott Travis, the drummer, has been there for like 30 years. Uh, he's been there a long time versus KK and KK's priest. So you got KK Downing, you've got Ripper Owens. Those two, the only ones right now in the band that were actually members of priest. Les Binks was the original drummer or slated to be the drummer for KK's priest, but he had a wrist injury. And so you notice in the video, it's not Les Binks. And I think they wound up recording without Les Binks. So we may see Les Binks back in the fold, uh, but let's just keep our eyes open for what happens with uh, KK's priest coming up. Guys, shoot us an email, classicguitarrock at mail.com. Let us know if you have any questions or comments or suggestions we'd love to hear from you i do want to share one email with you a friend of the show eric mason who we've heard from before thanks thanks for checking in eric he sent this email and it says uh, subject line deeper family tree roots he says i really enjoy the family tree episodes have you ever considered going deeper into the blues 
influences of so many of the great rock guitarists. I had the privilege to see Buddy Guy in Austin a few years back. Until I saw him live, I could never fully appreciate his influence on Jimi Hendrix. Watching and hearing Buddy Guy live, it became clear Hendrix learned so much from him. Until I began trying to learn guitar a few years back, I never realized the deep connection between rock and the blues, but I really love learning about all the dots that connect and the deep roots that exist, going all the way back to Robert Johnson. Also, thanks for the awesome Billy Gibbons hacks. Uh, he's talking about on the YouTube channel there. Loving the podcast and the great guitar lessons. Thank you. Eric, thanks so much. And I responded to Eric. I said, hi, Eric. I had the chance to watch Buddy live in 94 from about three feet away. And I did. And it was one of the greatest shows I've ever, I've ever done. I saw him at the Masonic Temple here in Spokane, Washington. And I literally was standing at the foot of the stage. And there's Buddy Guy three feet away. Uh, I was standing at the front of a stage in a small venue, one of the greatest experience of my life. Hendrix borrowed a lot from Buddy, and Buddy borrowed a lot from T-Bone Walker. I think that would be a great idea for the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And then he replied back one more time, The Blues had a baby, and they named it Rock and Roll. That's a famous quote from Muddy Waters. And Eric brings up a great point and a great topic that we will cover in a future episode, the the blues roots of classic rock, because they are undeniable. They are a massive part. Uh, the biggest trunk of the classic rock tree would have to be the blues. So we will definitely dig into that. And that's a great idea, Eric. So stand by for an episode on that. Now, when we come back, we're going to jump in to the legendary band, underrated band that is Wishbone Ash. That's coming right up on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Attention! If you live in Spokane, Washington and have teeth, this message is for you. Ron and Jarvis Family Dentistry knows teeth. Incisors, bicuspids, canines, molars. No tooth is too big or too small. I was delighted and impressed. So impressed, I bought the company. With Braun and Jarvis, you'll have the sweetest grill in the inland northwest. And let's be honest, nobody wants a funky grill. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry. 509-464-2391. That's 509-464-2391. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry. Quality dentistry that doesn't suck. Hi, this is Jeremy Lennon from the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Did you know that one of the most efficient and effective ways for businesses to reach potential customers is by advertising on podcasts? You see, unlike radio, TV, and social media, where advertising is literally background noise or clutter, podcast listeners are much more tuned in and engaged than those audiences. They've tuned in to actually listen to the podcast. And even more important, podcasts are very niche-oriented. This allows businesses to send their message to a very specific and targeted audience. For instance, the Classic Guitar Rock podcast core demographic is 40 to 60 year old males who like classic rock. Now, if that is your target market, then this podcast is an excellent way to reach them. 
Oh, and by the way, this podcast is one of the top 3% most popular shows out of over 2 million podcasts globally, according to ListenNotes.com. You would be pleasantly surprised to see how inexpensive it is to advertise on our podcast. If you are a business owner and want to reach a growing audience around the world, you should talk to us while there's still availability. If you're interested, email us at ClassicGuitarRock at Mail.com. That's ClassicGuitarRock at Mail.com. Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy. Without Jeff today, Jeff should be back next week, and we will be dissecting that Blackberry Smoke album like an arrow. So stay tuned for that in the coming weeks. As promised, I wanted to talk about Wishbone Ash. And why Wishbone Ash? If you delve into the history of many of the big guitar bands of the late 70s and 80s, early 70s, mid 70s through the 80s, you see this name Wishbone Ash pop up a lot. And why is that? Well, there's a a couple reasons. Uh, I think the first thing that folks think about when you hear Wishbone Ash is this whole two guitar, the two, the twin guitar attack, right? The two guitars, the harmonized guitar parts. Uh, That's definitely a part of it. Also, great vocals. They have a a great vocal sound, but they were very influential. Iron Maiden, Leonard Skinnerd. A lot of the two guitar bands you think of will point back to the work done by Wishbone Ash. So I would absolutely recommend that you dig into a little history with Wishbone Ash and check out some of their albums. I'm I'm not going to do a an album review per se, but I, I do want to mention the Hallmark album. I mean, the album that everyone points to any list you see of, of wishbone ash albums will probably have this album at the top of the list. That's their release from 1972 called Argus. And it's got the album cover shows, uh, kind of a, a medieval, uh, soldier centurion, whatever you want to call him from behind. He's got like a red cape on. He's kind of overlooking, you know, kind of on a mountainside. And you see him from behind kind of overlooking a, a city or something off in the distance. And his helmet from behind is shaped just like Darth Vader's, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> and there's kind of some some medieval themes in some of the songs. But this is a, a really great album. And And if you go back even before this album on the first couple albums, Wishbone Ash really kind of gets put into the progressive rock camp. And you definitely hear elements of that on, on this album, on, on Argus, but on the previous albums, probably even more so on the previous albums, you know, you get the, the interesting prog rock things that you don't normally hear on a straight ahead blues, uh, blues rock album. You hear a lot of, you know, strange rhythms and, and quirky little parts that, that make progressive rock what it is you definitely get that aspect of it from wishbone ash but on argus it all kind of gels into 
just a really, really good album. And I mean, it starts with mellow folk sounding things and it gets into more bluesy, just nice riffing and harmonized guitar solos and just really tasty, classy stuff that, that you will enjoy. And a lot of dynamics, like I said, really mellow, soft stuff to rocking stuff. And the harmony vocals are really good. And I think something that, that any classic rock fan, any fan of the electric guitar, uh, is really going to appreciate. So if you haven't delved into Wishbone Ash, do yourself a favor and do that. Let's talk about the history just a little bit. Now, Wishbone Ash, uh, started out in 1969 when a bass player named Martin Turner and a drummer named Steve Upton got together. And this was in a town. This is in, this is in England, Torquay, Devon in England in 1969. And so they get together. They're looking for a band. Oh, their first manager, by the way, you'll probably recognize this is a guy named Miles Copeland III, who is also the brother of Stuart Copeland in the police. Miles Copeland was their manager. Miles Copeland founded IRS Records. So that's kind of a, a, a famous name in the music business. So Miles Copeland was their first uh, manager. And at this point, Martin and Steve need a guitar player. So they, I don't know if they posted it on a wall or something, but they advertise, hey, we need a guitar player. Two guys came, more than two, but the two they really liked. First was a guy named Andy Powell. The second was a guy named Ted Turner. Not Turner Broadcasting Ted Turner, but a different Ted Turner from England. No relation to Martin Turner, which is interesting because when I saw early pictures and early lineup lineups of the band, Martin Turner and Ted Turner kind of looked alike. So I assume they were brothers, but there's no relation there. So they couldn't really decide which guitar player they liked the best because at, at this point, you know, they just assumed it would be one guitar player because that's pretty much what bands did back then, you know, but they decided let's keep both of them. I think at the time, the Allman Brothers, they probably had two guitar players. So I'm sure there were other bands that had two lead guitars. Well, even going back to Beck and Page in the Yardbirds, you know, there were there were times there with two guitar players, though they didn't do a whole lot of dual lead, harmonized lead stuff like wishbone ash would eventually do but you know there there the case could be made that jeff beck and and jimmy page one of the early twin guitar attacks uh in the yardbirds uh and in fact it, early on around this early 70s when argus was out you know andy powell and ted turner they they were always winning the guitar player reader polls and the music magazine polls for the best guitar players in England and the, and the best pair of guitar players. So they were getting some critical acclaim, but the band gets together. They actually in 1970 opened for deep purple and Richie Blackmore recommended wishbone ash to their producer, Derek Lawrence. And it led to them you know, getting record deals and, you know, just kind of a, a, a nice start for them in their career. Uh, so kind of interesting. They had these first three or four albums that did pretty well. They were well received 
And after their fourth album, which is called Wishbone Ash 4, Ted Turner, the guitar player, left, and he was replaced by a guitarist named Lori Wisefield. Lori is short. I can't remember his first name. First first name or middle name is Lawrence, and the Lori was short for Lawrence. So Lori Wisefield came in, and this guy, kind of diminutive, small guy. You can tell when he holds a guitar, he's not not very tall. And I've seen him in later videos, and he's just a short little guy. But man, can play very well and a great singer. And once Wisefield was in there, and I don't know that he's the reason, but you get this stretch of albums from from the mid-70s up through the early 80s where their sound kind of changes. It becomes a little more a little more accessible, uh, a little more hooky. I, I don't want to say that it's it's you know become really commercial because it's still not super commercial. They still didn't have a, a whole lot of record sales, but and it's good stuff. I like it. If you can find concerts on YouTube, check out some of those mid to late seventies shows with Lori Weisfield. But he's an excellent guitar player. Now there's some interesting history with Lori Weisfield. He played in a band called Home, a progressive rock band called Home, who had a bass player named Cliff Williams, who went on to be in a band called ACDC. Lori Weisfield, after leaving Wishbone Ash in the early 80s, he has been Tina Turner's tour, one of Tina Turner's touring guitarists for several years. One of the most interesting things he's done, and you should check it out, is a project with Mickey Moody formerly of White Snake. This is around two, uh, 2013, a little project called Snake Charmer, which featured uh, several former White Snake folks. There's Mickey Moody, there's Neil Murray, the bass player, Lori Weisfield comes in. They've got two albums out that are actually very good. If you're a White Snake fan and, and a fan of that type of music. I think you'd like those, but Lori Weisfield is, is part of that project also. So there's some things you can check out. Uh, another interesting little tidbit in 1981, well, previously to producing this album in 1981, the bass player and, and primary singer Martin Turner, who created the band, if you remember, they told him that they wanted to get a front man. We want a lead singer. You know, that's, that's all this person will do is be a singer, and which means, Martin, we just want you to focus on playing bass. Well, Martin had been the main singer since the beginning. He and Andy Powell, there's so much harmony vocal. You know, they're, they're almost, I don't want to say always singing together. A lot of the time, there's, there's at least two guys singing, lots of harmonies. But Martin was the primary, I guess what you'd call the lead singer. Well, he decided to leave because he didn't want to be just a bass player. And they bring in this guy who had been in a band called King Crimson. He'd been in a band called UK by the name of John Wetton. Perhaps you've heard of him, right? Uh, bass player and singer. So even though they told Martin that they didn't want a singing bass player, they wind up getting a singing bass player. And so they record this album in 1981. It's called Number the Brave. And Wetton actually only sings on one song. So I guess Andy Powell's probably doing uh, most of the singing. He brought a few songs. In fact, one of the songs that John Wetton brought was a song called Here Comes That Feeling, 
Those of you that are Asia fans will recognize that song on the the first Asia album, which sold millions and millions and millions of copies. He offered that song to Wishbone Ash, and it didn't wind up going on the album. Anyways, John Wetton was only in the only re- uh, appeared on that one album, only sang one song. I love John Wetton. It would have been interesting to see if he stayed there for a while. But had had he done that, then we maybe never would have seen Asia. Who knows? But that's just kind of a little piece of history there. John Wetton was then replaced by a guy from Uriah Heep, by another guy from Uriah Heep, because, of course, John Wetton was also in Uriah Heep for a time. Uh, but he was replaced by Trevor Boulder, who also was playing bass and also was handling vocals. So poor Martin, he's probably wondering, well, why did you hire these guys that are singing and playing bass? You told me you just wanted a singer. Martin's a great bass player and great singer. So there might've been something else going on. Apparently there's, there's been some drama uh, in the band, but one thing you need to understand is these guys are still putting out records. In fact, they have to date, I think 25 albums. Their their latest album was Coat of Arms in 2020. In fact, in the late 80s, around 87, 88, the original lineup did get back together. So Martin Turner was back. Ted Turner was back. They did a couple albums. Again, not to any great fanfare. You know, they, they never had a lot of great commercial success. Argus in 1972 has been their most successful album, but it's all good stuff. And so if you go back and listen, even Coat of Arms, which was 2020, it's good. It's solid stuff. And it's interesting when you see these bands, they they manage to maintain a level of success, enough that they continue to record, continue to tour, continue to make a living playing music, which is great. But it's it's good stuff. Now, I will say there's some stuff around 99... 98, 97, the, there's these three albums. There's Trance Visionary from 97, Psychic Terrorism, 1998, uh, Bare Bones, 99, which is kind of just acoustic re-recordings of different songs. But the Trance Visionary and Psychic Terrorism doesn't even sound like Wishbone Ash. Okay, It's like electronic ambient type stuff. If you're into that, you might like it, but if it didn't say Wishbone Ash on the album, you would have no idea that it was Wishbone Ash. So those are kind of a weird stretch in their history. But man, they have pretty much like clockwork every year or two been putting out an album. They do have a few three or four year stretches where there's not an album. But for the most part, every year or two, they've been putting out albums. And this is the mystery about bands like this. When you watch, there's a, a video from about 75. Lori Weisfield is in the band, but you've got Martin Turner on bass and vocals. Andy Powell's the only consistent member. He's the only one. He owns the Wishbone Ash name. So if you go see the band now, he's probably the only, in fact, he is the only original member. He's got several guys that have been in there 20 years, but they aren't original members. But Andy Powell has been the common thread always plays his flying V, uh, always has glasses on, you know, kind of had a distinct look for a rock band. But I scratch my head thinking, why weren't these guys superstars? Because when you see them, 
some of these live shows from the mid seventies, the musicianship is great. Martin Turner, I think is a great bass player. I think he has great charisma and is a great singer, good looking guy, you know, Lori Wiseman, good looking guy. I mean, they have the look, they have the songs. You just kind of wonder why they weren't more popular. And you might laugh when I say this, but as I listen to a lot of what they do, it kind of reminds me of yes, kind of yes, with more bluesy rock and guitar playing, right? And I don't mean this as a slam against Steve Howe. Steve Howe's a brilliant acoustic player, a brilliant classical player. His electric guitar playing has never done it for me. I just never have been a huge fan of his electric playing. What I like about Wishbone Ash is you've got that that kind of adventurous vocal stuff that you hear from a group like Yes. You got the busy bass lines. You got interesting things going on. But I way, way, way prefer the guitar sound of Wishbone Ash to Yes. Again, I don't mean that to be disparaging. It is what it is. That's just what I think. But if you're a fan of Yes, I think you'd probably dig Wishbone Ash too if you went out and, and checked out uh, a lot of what they do. One of the great things about them is it's hard to pigeonhole them because they are kind of all over the place, but it's all good. If you're a fan of good guitar music, whether that's folk influence or blues or hard rock or jazz or fusion, I mean, you'll find something in Wishbone Ash that, uh, that you'll enjoy. If you're going to start with an album, start with Argus from 1972. I love that album from beginning to end. Just a great album, great guitar playing, great singing, great bass playing, great production. Just a really good album. Guys, wanted to share my thoughts on Wishbone Ash and wanted to check in and say hi. It's been a, a few weeks since we've had an episode, so I wanted to make sure we checked in with you all. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Send us an email classicguitarrock at mail.com we'd love to hear from you love to hear your suggestions and as always check out our youtube channel check us out on facebook check us out on twitter and we'll see you next time on the classic guitar rock podcast bye-bye thanks for listening to the classic guitar rock podcast please like subscribe and share you can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.